Welcome to the Bare Marriage Podcast, your place for healthy, evidence-based, biblical advice on marriage. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, and I am here with my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach. Hello. And we have a lot of fun things to talk about this week. We are starting a new series on the blog, Are We Making Marriage Harder Than It Needs To Be? Yes. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we do that, Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had our unfiltered podcast where we played um, a podcast that our patrons get, the people who help support um, our ministry as we look to get our research published in peer-reviewed journals and um, disseminate that research through other social media channels that are harder to monetize or exactly and so we got we gave you a sneak peek behind the scenes peek at some of our perks for our patrons and we just want to say thank you to all the new people who subscribed yes and to support us we're really grateful and you can do that we're going to leave the link in the um, podcast notes for this so it's not too late to, to join on we have a wonderful Facebook group and we've gotten to know so many people really really well and that's been a lot of fun and we also want to say thank you so much to Covenant Eyes this month they are our big supporters for the podcast and we appreciate them I am a big believer in Covenant Eyes when it comes to making sure that your internet is safe for your kids that they can't stumble onto something accidentally and it's a great first step when you're trying to get over a porn addiction it does not cure anything (laughs) it just simply sets the stage so that now you can work on it Uh, and so we have a link to covenant eyes it helps you filter things it helps um, with accountability and you can see that link in the podcast notes as well okay becca let's talk about marriage being harder than it needs to be yes (laughs) i have a theory that a lot of modern Christian advice for marriage sounds an awful lot like the Gnostics. And here's what I mean by that. Yeah. A lot of Christian advice says things like marriage is hard. But it's a sanctifying force. But it's a sanctifying force. And you just need to understand that marriage is hard. And the reason marriage is hard is because you have all of these expectations. Mm -hmm. And if you can let go of those expectations, Mm -hmm. if you can simply be content regardless of what's happening in your marriage, you'll be closer to God. Right. Because we are to be content in every circumstance. Yeah. that kind of sounds right. Yep. Like Philippians 4 talks about, you know, being content in everything. Paul says in other places that, you know, whether he, he's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, and he's found <laughs> the secret of contentment. And so aren't we supposed to just be content yes. with everything? And yet, I think that that whole approach to marriage actually makes marriage hard harder yeah. than it needs to be and that's what we're looking at in september is are we making marriage harder than it needs to be yeah exactly it reminds me of like the gnostics like yes and do you want to stoicism and gnosticism are it, it's it's not just reminds of it's just that we never left it right right so so there were these branches of philosophy stoicism eventually turned into gnosticism the overarching similarity is that there's this idea of Anything that is virtuous or of the metaphysical world, like the spiritual realm, is good. Mm -hmm. Truth, virtue, God, those kinds of things are good. And anything Mm -hmm. that is physical is either neutral or outright bad, depending on which school you're in. And physical could even just be any kind of pleasure. Yes. Like wanting pleasure is a bad thing. Yes, like enjoying a really good feast. 
Mm-hmm. Might I think the Stoics are kind of like it's morally neutral, but if you don't do those things and you're able to live without it, you're Ooh, good. That's real special. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like some of these, some of these kinds of philosophical uh, groups that have like their conferences, and yes, conferences were even a thing. Like those little like life coach conferences were a thing as early as like the 200 CE or the AD, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, they'd have these conferences where people would go and they'd spend a week making this gorgeous piece of pottery and then they'd have to smash it at the end <laughs> to show how spiritually enlightened they were, right. that they were able to part with this beautiful thing they had made. Right. Um, or they'd bring their favorite item and like the, the height of spiritual enlightenment by the end of it was to be able to cast it into fire and feel nothing. Right. right? And so desire... Any kind of desire or yearning for pleasure or yearning for happiness is somehow wrong. And it, yeah. is, it is better to be beyond that, to be above it, to yeah. just simply exist wanting virtue, wanting God. And we see this actually in 1 Corinthians 7, as we talked about a couple of months ago when we were looking at Christian teaching on sex throughout the ages, how Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 was actually talking directly against the Gnostic mentality sex that was going through the church where it's like it is holier to abstain completely yeah and he's saying hold on a second there's nothing wrong with sex don't deprive each other and that was that was the culture and that was the framing where he was speaking into that yeah because that he was speaking into a hellenistic culture Mm -hmm. that hellenistic just means kind of your the greeks the romans that kind of area so i mean it is technically the greeks but then the romans kind of Right, which is why even though it was in the Roman Empire, the New Testament was written in Greek. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, there's a lot of all that there, but that's that's exactly what was happening. Is people were saying anything that is not actively spiritual must therefore be less than anything that is actively spiritual. Mm -hmm. But what they're defining spiritual as is whether or not you're experiencing it with your body or with your soul. Right, and God made both. Yeah, and let's not forget how many of Jesus' miracles were very much in the physical realm, right? He fed the, he fed uh-huh. the 4,000. He fed the 5,000. He yep. healed diseases. He cast out demons. He stopped the wind and the waves. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he did so much in the physical realm, and God made our physical bodies, and we're even going to have physical bodies in the resurrection, and so the physical is not a bad thing. No, but the thing is, we've seen throughout history, you know, obviously all these whole philosophical movements have gotten their... Uh, fame and their kind of popularity among all different classes and walks of life and people with lots of money, people with no money. Mm -hmm. But what we have seen a lot over and over and over again is that throughout history, and I'm not just talking about stoicism and Gnosticism anymore, a lot of these kind of mentalities of just focus on God or just focus Mm -hmm. on virtue, and if you're focusing on your hardship in the present, you're not as good of a Christian, are often really, really promoted towards those who are in bad situations. Yes. That's actually why John Calvin had such an important message in that time. He spoke a lot to, like, the message of Calvinism where it's like, you are in your position for a purpose. Mm -hmm. You are here for a reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, that actually was quite it felt quite liberating to your peasants. Yes. It was like, my great-great-grandfather was the peasant's land worker of the great-great-grandfather uh, of the current landlord, <laughs> yes. and my great-great-grandson will likely also be a peasant yes. in this same hut. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know? And, and I think, like, being able to tell those people who are in, frankly, situations that are not going to change, mm-hmm. that they have to learn to live with, mm-hmm. it gives them a little bit of a balm where it's like, maybe God put me in this horrible situation for a purpose and they really take off. Yeah. And so 
it makes sense why people like this teaching, yes. in essence. And it was very much preached to the slaves as well. And that was a big one I was going to say next. Yeah. yeah. American slavery. And we find it in modern marriage teaching, which is what I want yes. to talk about today. And I put something on Facebook a couple of weeks ago where I said, I sometimes wonder if most Christian marriage authors and influencers have good marriages. I just read a meme regarding marriage that said, God, I can't do this alone. I need your help and grace. What if marriage is God's grace to you? Or at least what if it should be? I know many marriages are hard and many marriages can't be saved. And many of us go through very difficult seasons. But when those who teach about marriage make it sound like being married is a huge hard slog that they can't get through without God's grace, well, that's weird, isn't it? My marriage makes my life easier. There has never been a day in my life, even when I'm mad at Keith, when I would have thought that marriage is one of the hardest things in my life. Maybe the problem is that we talk about marriage as if it is hard, and then when people are dating and the relationship is awful, they figure, well, that's just how marriage is. They don't recognize red flags, and so they may marry someone they didn't suit or who has bad character. And then, yes, marriage is going to be hard. But ideally, marriage should be God's gift to us, not something that we need his power to get through. Now, obviously, we do need God's power for everyday life. And I said that later in the comments. But like this idea that we cannot get through this, like save God, I would die and it Mm -hmm. would not work. That's that's a really negative way of framing marriage. And let me also say, if your marriage is really hard, I'm afraid that the idea that marriage is hard will mean that you may not recognize that your situation is actually worse than normal and you do need help. If all marriage is hard, then you may think what you're going through is just par for the course and just something to be endured. Or when you talk to others, they may downplay your pain because, well, all marriage is hard. No, marriage shouldn't ideally be hard. And if it is, that means you need help to make it better. Hard isn't just something to be endured because it's inevitable. Yeah. And I think that the way that we teach that marriage is hard really does make people think that when they're choosing a marriage partner, choosing someone that makes their life easier would not even necessarily come into the equation. Well, and we hear from so many women too who are married to people where marriage is hard. They don't feel they have the right to speak up and say, I can't live in this anymore because then they're weaker than everyone else who's able to manage their mm-hmm. hard marriages. And I, I, I just wanna say, I, I do need to take a step back here and say, we're not saying that marriage is always going to make your life easier. Yes. Like yeah. you could be married to someone who's in a car accident and becomes a quadriplegic and now you need that. That's your responsibility to help them. Yeah. Because that's what a covenant means. And, and so sometimes life happens and things happen that are very difficult. And we had a son pass away. These things are hard <laughs> and life can be hard, but there's a huge difference between circumstances happening that are think, hard, external circumstances, and things that we just adopt or contribute to or yeah. think, well, I just need to accept this the way like it here's, is. Here's the difference, is obviously having kids always makes your life more complicated, yes. always makes your life more difficult, right? Mm-hmm. My life was fundamentally easier before I had Alex. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, I wouldn't trade my life with Alex for anything in the world. Yeah, I right. think you have his snot on your shoulder right now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, that's banana from this morning. Okay, that's well, banana. there you go. But that, yeah, that but just hey, shows but it. It just shows I have banana on my shoulder. But the point is, like, life is definitely harder having a child. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that my life feels like I'm miserable about mm-hmm. it. It's, it's mm-hmm. a good kind of harder. It's, yes. It's a... Every day I'm grateful that I get to do this, 
Even mm-hmm. if I don't, and I know I say that and it sounds like I'm sitting on a beach saying, wow, my life is so wonderful. But like sometimes you just, you're just overwhelmed, but you're still like, I wouldn't trade this for anything else. Mm-hmm. That's often where we get mixed up where people say, but my marriage, but, but marriage is sometimes hard. Like sometimes you just deal with financial difficulties. Someone loses a job. Someone, you know, maybe mm-hmm. your partner has long-term health issues. Maybe you're a blended family and there's just difficulties with that. And these are things where it's like, yes, but that's a life issue. Yeah. We're not saying that when you get married, you don't have to deal with life anymore. Right. What we're saying is parenting is really hard for me. It yes. is. I love it. Yes. But it's hard for everyone. It would be a whole lot harder if I didn't have Connor. Mm-hmm. But I know there are a lot of women who are not in that situation. Yeah. Where they actually become single parents and it's easier for them. Yeah. Because their spouse is making more work. That's what we're talking about here. Where it's yeah. like, yeah, life is hard. Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Life is hard. Mm-hmm. But does your marriage, even if your marriage is the root cause of some of the life things, mm-hmm. you know, like you wouldn't have been married to someone with long-term health issues. Right. Or you wouldn't have been married to someone who, um, you know, then loses their job or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like even if the marriage is technically the cause, is it a life is hard kind of situation? Mm-hmm. Or is it a, your spouse is actively making your life harder than it needs to be in this life is hard situation? Yeah, and then the problem becomes that our advice, our Christian advice to people who are in a marriage where their spouse is actually making their life harder. Yeah. Is give up expectations, give yes. up desire. The reason that this is hard is because you want something. If yeah. you stop wanting it, yeah then it will no longer be hurting you. And that's just what we're talking about with the Gnostic, the Gnostic and the Stoic mentality of mm-hmm. your problem is you're still too attached to the physical. Right. You know, so your problem is that you want to have a spouse who helps out with housework. Mm-hmm. Your problem is that you want to feel heard in your marriage in a way that, you know, makes you feel heard. So maybe if you can just learn to not need that, yeah. then your marriage will be better. Yeah, because the problem is your desire or your expectation in the first place. Yeah. And so if we get rid of desire, then there is no more suffering. Yeah. If we get rid of desire, then you can't suffer because you're not missing anything. Yeah. And so the focus becomes on getting people to be content with things that they should not actually be content with. Or also it gets people content with giving up things that God actually wants for us. Mm-hmm. Like for this reason, a husband, like a man will leave his father, and mother and become one with, with his wife. Like, like we're supposed to want that intimacy. Yeah. We're supposed to want for, mm-hmm. you know, our spouse to cleave from his family and cleave to us. This, this idea that we shouldn't want things that are healthy because if we don't get them, we'll be disappointed. Mm-hmm. means that instead what's happening is we are closing ourselves off from the from the blessings of God because we're not willing to call people to actually act like Christ. Yeah. And 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 so let's say you're in a marriage and your spouse is really doing something which is disrupting intimacy. Yeah. Uh maybe they're never taking on their share of housework, child care, mental load, whatever, and you're just completely overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe they're just not sharing influence. Yeah, maybe right? they're, they really don't care about your input on things. No. Maybe they're completely cut off sexually and don't want to take any steps to try to sort that out. You yeah. know, whatever it might be. And the solution to that should not be, well, just don't care about it. Yeah. The solution should be, how can I fight for intimacy? Mm-hmm. And... That's what we're missing is like we think that the Christian thing to do is to go to God and say, God, you can supply all my needs. 
But it's the same God who says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah. And maybe what God wants for you and your spouse is to achieve real intimacy. And that means you stepping up. Obviously, I have a toddler. Okay. (laughs) Everyone who listens to the podcast knows I have a son. He is 22 months now when we're recording this. And he is a very, I will just say, he just shares his father and my personality a Mm -hmm. lot. So we saw this coming. (laughs) But he's very strong-willed. Yes. He's very emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, so the strong will's from Connor, the emotional's from me. <laughs> it's a great combination. Um, but as a result, you know, I've been doing a lot of research into modern parenting practices with like temper tantrums and with, you know, hitting at outbursts and stuff because he's a two-year-old, right? Yes. And what all the experts that I'm reading, all the psychologists are all saying is what a lot of, what a lot of um, parents and toddlers get into this horrible dynamic where the toddler does something bad like hit and they get this huge reaction from mom and dad and the toddler eventually learns mom and dad will yell at me or punish or whatever for seven minutes and then I will get a cookie yes you know or and then I will be able to play again or and then I'll be able to do xyz so they they learn in essence okay if I hit mommy they will say, no, we do not hit. And I will go and time out for two minutes and then I will have gotten my frustration out and I can go back to play. Mm-hmm. And they learn actually, you know, hitting is worth it. Yeah. I am willing to pay two <laughs> minutes in time out for hitting because they had this emotional outburst and they're like, yep, that's worth it, I'll do it. Yeah. And so uh, there's other ways to deal with it instead versus what we naturally want to do, which is like meet that, that uh, outburst with another outburst, right? So anyway, but what a lot of these psychologists were saying, which just made me laugh so hard, is that a lot of us are two-year-olds any chance we get. Okay. Right? So what happens is we do X. We know we're not supposed to do X. Okay? Mm -hmm. We know it's not great to do X. But we know that if we do X, our partner will be mad and hissy for 10 days. Mm -hmm. We will have to have approximately three to four heartfelt conversations where we need to talk. Uh Um, (laughs) Life will be miserable for five days. And then everything will kind of go back to normal. And we're like, you know what? I'm going to do X because that's worth it. If the price price of X is worth it, and I know everything's going to go back to normal in a little bit, I'm going to do it. Um, And this often happens subconsciously. Yes. You know, we're not actively trying to manipulate our spouses. But often we do things where it's like, okay, I would rather not do this. And so I'm just not going to. I'm going to deal with the ramifications because the ramifications of not doing it are not going to be that bad. Yeah. And it's all going to go back to normal. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to say with this whole marriage is hard series is sometimes you need to recognize that your spouse is being a toddler. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> you have to make it so that the actual repercussion of their action isn't simply a short-term burst, mm-hmm. but is actually training and working together to have different skills, a different normal, and a different routine so that the behavior just stops happening. Mm-hmm. Because God wants intimacy for us. He wants intimacy. And if your spouse is doing something which is sowing disunity in the relationship, mm-hmm. 
then your spouse should not get to reap intimacy. Yeah. <laughs> like, because then you're not going to have intimacy. Your spouse might feel great, but you're not going to feel great. You might, you might say, well, I guess things just have to get back to normal now because mm-hmm. nothing I say is working. And yeah. so your spouse feels like everything is normal, but inside you are dying. Yeah. And that's like, again, that's like the parents where it's like, well, nothing's working. So I'm just going to let my kid do whatever yeah. he wants. Right. But inside, in, in that marriage, inside you are dying, but you've allowed everything to externally get back to normal. Yeah. Because you feel like, well, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. So so the wife brings up the fact that like, I feel like I am drowning. I cannot do this anymore. Everything is on my shoulders and it's just too much. Mm -hmm. And the husband says his whole thing, whatever it is. And they talk about, they fight, they, she pushes, he does a half-hearted attempt to maybe wash four dishes after dinner once. Mm -hmm. She reminds him again and then it's like, "Eh," it's even more half-hearted and she realizes nothing's going to change. And so she just goes back to doing all the dishes. Yeah. Right. And he's learned that if he just if he just puts up enough of a stink then he doesn't have to actually yeah. do anything or maybe it's something that she's doing you know she's yeah. overspending he can't get a handle on it he keeps buying her stuff because she keeps wanting more things or whatever it might be maybe she's got some major trauma issues and she won't go see a counselor <laughs> and it's just a and, and she's taking marriage. it out on the kids or something yeah too. and like, like it, it's not always one way we're not saying that it's no. the guy who's the bad one here but what we're saying is that often in the relationship you know one spouse really wants to build intimacy and the other one is working directly against that yeah but because we hear marriage is hard (laughs) we hear that it is a sin for me to actually want change and so you might speak up once because you're desperate but then eventually you just let things get back to normal but inside you're dying yeah and And you think and you think the problem is I am dying rather than the problem is my spouse isn't caring about me yeah and I think the thing is a lot of women especially because remember this this message is primarily given to women it is also given to men Mm -hmm. okay but but like if you're in a marriage where your spouse is actively harming you or like your emotional well-being or is harming the marriage or is just making life more difficult than it needs to be you can feel very trapped like i either need to accept that my marriage is bad Mm -hmm. or i can accept that i'm the problem Mm -hmm. You know, or I can see this as a sanctifying opportunity or I can, you know, just remind myself that this is just God's way of making me holier, you know, and, and that can be a psychological kind of escape hatch that allows us to feel really good about the marriage short term, even when we're miserable. Mm -hmm. So it allows us to not accept reality for that little bit longer. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like you're closing your eyes because you know the scary part's coming, but you're not willing to actually face it. Yeah. And so what we're looking at this month is, are we doing marriage on hard mode? Are we making marriage harder than it needs to be? Partly from the way we talk about marriage. (laughs) Yeah. The way that we talk about how, you know, it's just such a hard slog. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Yeah. You were at a you were at a wedding once. Oh my goodness! I was at a wedding once. Oh, I love listening to the. Okay, everyone's least favorite part of a wedding is the homily that the the pastor gives. It's one of my favorite parts. I mm-hmm. love listening to him. So I'm so curious what people say. Right. So I think it says a lot about you. Yeah. So there's one one wedding I was at where the pastor was just going on and on. He turned to like the wife first, or and then the husband next, and he he would say to one, "You're gonna wake up one day and you're not even gonna recognize the person beside you." It's not going to be the man that you fell in love with. It's just going to be this old dude who doesn't ever put his socks in the hamper. And you're going to be thinking, 
wish I had a baseball bat right about now, you know? And then he turns to the husband and he's like, you know, you're going to wake up and the gorgeous young woman you marry is going to be this old woman who, you know, just nags at you all the time. And you're going to be like, maybe death is better. And like, and it actually, he talked about killing your spouse or killing yourself in this homily. Like, I am sorry. There is no reason to do that at a wedding. But then he concluded with, and that's how Christ sees us. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, has anyone checked on this man's wife? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure that the idea of Christ and the church being like a, a marriage symbolism is not Christ hates you with every piece of bone in his body because you've, gr- you've grinded on his nerves for 28 <laughs> years and all he wants to do is just, yeah. you know, escape from you by any means necessary, but he'll stick around. Yeah. It's like, no, like, we're supposed to actually love each other. Yes. And that does not sound like wanting to murder each other every yeah. day. And I think that when we have this marriage is hard mentality, we don't put in the work to make a marriage good because when it's hard, that's seen as normal. It's not seen as a red flag that something is wrong. Exactly. And so as we're looking at it this month, we're going to ask the question, am I going through hardships in my life because they're just there. Like or life is I, just hard. Yeah, is this or, a just life is hard situation? Or am I contributing to the hardship in some way by the things that we're believing, yeah. by the way we're acting, and can we do things just not to have to do marriage on hard mode? And our, our plea as we're going through this is that we stop talking about marriage as being such a terrible thing because this whole idea that I need God's grace to stay married and to stay sane... How do non-Christians have good marriages then? Well, my thing too is it's 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 just I would find it quite horrifying and offensive if Connor talked like that about me. Yeah. Like the only way I'm able to stay with this horrendous woman is because God is giving me the strength to stay. Yeah. Like that's just that's just horrible. Mm-hmm. And and again, like we said, you know, there's a lot of people listening who we know you're in a good marriage. You love your spouse, and it's just hard right now. You know, maybe you're dealing with financial insecurity. Maybe you're dealing with, you know, an unexpected medical diagnosis. Maybe. Or, or maybe you are having trouble relating to each other because marriage has brought out some trauma that one of yeah. you hasn't dealt with and it needs to get dealt with, but it will get dealt with. But yeah. it's hard in the but meantime. You're in a period of life where life is just hard right now. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're going to have some tips for you as well. Yes. Where you're in a good marriage. It's not like anyone is actively trying to take advantage of the other mm-hmm. but you are just in a life is just hard situation that's mm-hmm. fine that's not what we're talking about here okay so but there are a lot of people out there who are living marriages that are far harder than they need to be under the guise of well i'm just doing the sanctifying work of christ in my life right now mm-hmm. when really what they should be doing is flipping some tables and mm-hmm. figuring out how do we stop putting ourselves through more misery than necessary because i am enabling selfishness or because you are being a selfish person. Yeah, and and of course, there's people who are in marriages that are truly destructive. Thank you. Yeah, and then there's that one. It's as not, well. it, you know, it's not even that you're enabling. It's no, just, it's very destructive, and you don't realize that this isn't normal. Yes. Because we've been told our whole lives that well, marriage is just hard, and that's what we heard over and over again in the comments on Facebook. As women said, I stayed for 15 years longer than I should have. Exactly. Um, because I just thought this is just what marriage is. Yeah. And that's a terrible picture of marriage. So we're going to look at how we can 
try to do life and marriage on easy mode rather than hard mode so that we have the emotional resources, the financial resources, the time resources to really live out our calling and all fullness and joy mm -hmm. rather than get bogged down in this slog that we were really never meant to have. And then also, it does mean that when the life is hard stuff comes, you can actually get through it a lot easier. Yes, exactly. I got some new research for you. Okay. You haven't heard this one. No, I haven't. Okay. So I we love like... it when you spring research on me that I haven't gotten to read yet. Yes. Yeah, so we have our, in our new research segment of the week where we like, because because we are research-based, The Great Sex Rescue was a research-based book. We, we, we surveyed 20,000 women, did a full literature review, did focus groups, etc. And we are trying to ask that when people talk about marriage and sex and these sorts of things, we use actual research and actual data. Yes. And so we like to highlight different areas of research not our own as but but just other people who are doing research in this field and here uh, our good friend Camden Morgante who has written for our blog and who has been a, um, a guest on the podcast as well she's a licensed clinical psychologist yes. and she wrote an article um, outlining a recent study in the American Sociological Review which looked at structural sexism and health Mm hmm And so what they did... I actually have read this article already. Oh, okay. Yes, I have. I just... That... You didn't know that. <laughs> okay. So um, what they did was they looked at people who were going to churches yep. where women were in leadership in some way mm -hmm. versus uh, people who were going to churches where women weren't. Mm -hmm. And then they just measured women's health. <laughs> yeah. And what they found is that women who go to churches where women are in leadership tend to be healthier yes. and live longer than women who go to churches where women are not in leadership. And here's the other thing, because and this is something that which, that which we were trying to figure out how to dissect in our survey, because one of the problems we had with the Great Sex Rescue is that we found that being religious tended to lead to better marriages. Yes, and, and, and we're not the only ones who found and that. And being religious tends to lead to better outcomes for your kids. But then we looked at all these specific beliefs and we found, but those beliefs actually lead to worse outcomes. So yes. what's going on? And, and that's what they found is that yes, being religious helps, but when you compare people's health benefits of going to church versus people who don't go to church, it only helps if you're going to churches where women are in leadership. Yes, where, so when, when, when women, women are not in leadership, the health benefits of being religious evaporate. For women, not for, for women. For women, not for yeah. men, yes. And that's exactly the issue, is we do find that kind of, in general, religious affiliation tends to just kind of seem to help men, mostly likely because men are, are given positions of authority in every church. Yep. And so here, I'm just going to read you the results. We find that among religious participants, women who attend sexist religious institutions report significantly worse self-rated health than do those who attend more inclusive congregations. Furthermore, only women who attend inclusive religious institutions exhibit a health advantage relative to non-participants. We observe marginal to no statistically significant effects among men. Our results suggest the health benefits of religious participation do not extend to groups that are systematically excluded from power and status within their religious institutions. Yep. And we will put a link there um, in the in the show notes, both to the study and to Camden's article about yeah. it, which was really good. Yeah, and we're we're right now we're in the middle of writing and researching for our mother daughter book, and this is one of the things where, you know, especially if you have young girls, having your daughters being raised in a church where they are taught from day one, you know, you are less worthy, you are just less than mm -hmm. because of your sex. Mm -hmm 
is you're going to have a lot of positive benefits because of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. We know that a lot of studies, not just ours, have found that religiosity in general means that you're happier. You have better mental health outcomes. You feel a greater purpose in life. Mm -hmm. But those things all have to do with personal religious... um, What's the... I'm sorry. Pregnancy brain is making it. What's the thing when you believe something strongly? Conviction. Conviction. Yes. Personal (laughs) personal religious convictions. And so, yeah. Teach your kids about Jesus and teach kids to have a relationship with Jesus first. But also, make sure you're not putting up an unnecessary barrier in front of your daughter's faith walk by having her in a community that tells her you are less than, God trusts you less, God desires less from you Mm -hmm. because you are a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we... You know what? We know that there's different doctrinal beliefs about women in leadership and we totally get that and we're not even going to enter those debates there's other great websites and books to go to if you Mm -hmm. want to examine those further we're just trying to bring out the research and we're just simply saying hey you know what women who go to churches where they aren't uh, allowed to make decisions or in leadership they do tend to report more depression um, more chronic pain more of those sorts of things so it's just an interesting finding yep and you can't ignore the numbers right research should matter and it really yeah it really should because i i think personally for me anyway this has been a really good check for pride Mm -hmm. because you know our research found some stuff that you and i like didn't expect right well joanna too i mean we're all blown away by some things Mm -hmm. you know and and it's something where you really makes you step backwards and say okay that was my assumption Mm-hmm. But if our research is showing that it's harming people, maybe we were wrong. Yep. And Maya Angelou, this saying is everywhere on the internet mm-hmm. right now. When you know better, you do better. And yep. that is what we are calling people to do. That is why in February, a new version of The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex is coming out. Yep. The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Girl's Guide is the 10th anniversary. I completely rewrote the book. And it, it's not even that it scored badly on our rubric. It's no. just... I feel like I know so much more than when I wrote in 2012, and there was a lot that I really wanted to change. Well, and we so, know 20,000 women more. Yeah, and so I completely rewrote the book. I pulled several books out of uh, publication, my earliest ones, because I'm just not comfortable with that, because that's what we do. When we know better, we do better, and our cry for the Christian community is to let's start looking at research, please, and let's do things in an emotionally healthy way. Okay, we now have... An interview to share with you. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of you are going to be excited about this one. Yeah. He loved his first interview. A while ago, we had Bruce Fleming on to talk about Genesis 3 and a new way of seeing what we call the curse of Eve. He's arguing that it's not a curse at all. Mm-hmm. And a number of people started following him. And we now have him here to talk about Ephesians 5. I have on the podcast Bruce Fleming again. Bruce joined us a couple of months ago now, I think, when we were talking about Genesis 3, and I had so much positive feedback from that. Everyone's been saying, what does Bruce think of head when it says that that man is the head of the wife? And so I have Bruce Fleming back on. So hello, Bruce. Hello. Thank you, Sheila. Yes, I know I've had so many requests for you, so this is great. So today, you thought I, I gave you free reign to decide what we were going to talk about next, and you thought the Ephesians 5 passage was the most important to deal with first. I like to get a detailed answer from a detailed passage. Mm-hmm. So there is there is talk about heads in 1 Corinthians eleven three, and in Ephesians 5, 23. Mm-hmm. The more detailed passage is in, in Ephesians chapter 5. So okay. if we can go there, that's I'd like to go there first. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> On the Eden podcast, we go into, in Genesis season one, we, we talked about the Garden of Eden and how people aren't understanding the two parts where God says to the woman, you're going to have two things. You're going to have sorrowful toil 
and you're going to have conception. And, right. and my wife, Joy, Dr. Joy Fleming, showed how that's linked back to the verse before it and the verse after it. So we've got those two things. Well, when she did that, I began looking at the New Testament. And I said, this, is, uh, this influences how I look at the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so she said, great, you know, let's, let's see what that means. So in Genesis 3.16, we don't have a curse on the woman. And we don't have God saying to her, I'm going to put him over in charge of you, even though he's the rebellious one. We don't have any of that. Right. So that's that's in season one of the Eden. And, Genesis, and Genesis 3.16, again, is the verse that we often mistranslate as like yeah. her desire will be to sort of rule over the husband or take authority from the husband. And but he shall rule over you. And weird, weird stuff's going on there. <laughs> that's, that's why that's why we did a whole book. And we put yes. out the, the book of Eden and we, we got that clarified, I, I hope. Yes. And I'll put a link in the podcast notes that go along with this podcast to the original podcast where you dealt with the Genesis three to say that, no, God did not curse the man. God did not curse the woman. And this whole idea that he is going to be over her um, is not a curse. It's just saying that's what, right. what's going to happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then in season two, we went through this and we talked about, and I have the word beyond beyond mm -hmm. Eden, because the great unity that you have in the in the Garden of Eden, where they're naked and unashamed, mm -hmm. and, and they're in a great relationship with God and with each other. Paul really goes uh, beyond that. And he says in Ephesians chapter five, I'm talking about this great mystery. And in the New Testament, a mystery is something that was previously hidden, but now is revealed. So he says, we could call it revelation. So I'm talking about this not just a revelation, but this great revelation. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about Christ and the church. Mm -hmm. And so I, when I hit that verse in Ephesians 5.32, I thought, oh, I, now I know what this whole passage is about. He's talking about this great mystery, Christ and the church. But people have said in their headings and the way they print the Bibles, they say, no, this, this whole passage up to, up to that verse is about marriage. Yeah. And it's about him being over her and all kinds of things. And so what I had to do is I had to say, I don't know what this passage is about. I'm going to go back and start with Ephesians. So mm -hmm. there are six chapters in Ephesians. And mm -hmm. the first three chapters, that's a good theological section. The last three chapters, that's a good practical section. Yes. And in Greek, he says, therefore, walk, as he starts chapter four, verse one. Mm -hmm. And then a few verses later on, he says, therefore, walk not. And then he says, therefore, walk therefore, And I thought I, I've got a pattern here. Therefore, walk not. Therefore, in 515, therefore, walk very carefully. And in 610, he says, therefore, stand. So we've got okay. five walks and one stand. I think that counts. So we've yeah, got yeah. six sections. So if I'm interested in the last part of Ephesians 5, I have to start with 5.15 and go all the way through 6.9. Even though there's a big number 6 there, like there's a chapter break, his whole section really starts at 5.15 and goes to 6.9. Right, because those chapter breaks were put in later. They were not put in by Paul, just so everyone knows. Centuries, centuries later, and then they tried, and they did a pretty good job, but not, not in this case. So then I go to 5.15, and I say, I want to get... I want to get into the middle of this passage, but I got to start at the beginning. All right. What happens in 515? He has four sets of commands. He says, therefore, walk or no, therefore, do this, but don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. And then he says the, the fourth one is be being filled with the spirit in 518. And what he's developing now is a pattern of fours. And I like Sherlock Holmes. And he has he, he has he has an episode called the sign of the four. All right. Mm -hmm. so, I found my sign of the four. And in those first four, the fourth one is the bigger one, the most important one. And not only that, he takes that fourth one and uses that 
and elaborates on it in another pattern of fours that opens in 519A. Mm -hmm. So he's got 19A, 19B, 20, 21, four more. Mm -hmm. And the big idea is in verse 21, which has to do with submitting yourselves one to another. But yep. Then he takes that and he opens up that concept in 21 and he goes all the way down to verse 6, 9. All of the rest of that passage is about 521. Yes. How do you submit to one another? Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's great. Then he's got the pattern of fours going again. He says, as Christ in 23B, as Christ in 25B, as Christ later on, just before 20, 29B. And then he, he hits us with the big fourth one, which is, I'm speaking about Christ in the church. Just as the husband and wife were one flesh, I'm saying that the, the church and the body of Christ are one flesh. Still, I'm looking for this head body. What, what does that mean? And I went back to Ephesians 3, and I came up with this verse in Ephesians 3, 6. So he says that the non-Jews should be joint heirs and a joint body and joint sharers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what he's talking about is this joint body metaphor. In Africa, I was working on this. We were in a little uh, Bible institute in the middle of the jungle. And uh, it was pretty quiet, and I was standing outside the front porch, just looking down, thinking about this husband as the head of the wife. And I noticed a train of ants walking across the corner of our step, and they have they have big ants out there. <laughs> and and I thought, you know, those ants are made up of a joint body. They have the head, they have the abdomen and the thorax. They got three different parts. No one part of the body is the body, but all three parts together make a joint body. Mm -hmm. Now, humans have a two-part joint body. We have the head and we have the torso. So if I'm going to call, if I'm going to talk about a unity of the husband and wife in the Garden of Eden, I'm going to say they were in one joint body, one whole marriage together. And the same thing now is in, in, in the book of Ephesians where he says, I want to talk to you about a unity. I want to talk about husbands and wives being joined together. And I want to talk about something even more important, and that's Christ and the church being joined mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. So if we start back now in 521, which is going to launch the rest of the passage, he takes the verse to submit, and he redoes it. You've gone into this previously before, I know. The big thing about 1 Corinthians 11.3 and Ephesians 5.25 is that people go there looking for two key words. They look for submission, and they look for headship. Right. There was a missing link that was talked a lot about where people say, what's the missing link between the ape and humans? What's that missing link? Well, the missing link is still missing. There are two missing links now in 1 Corinthians 11.3 and Ephesians 5. Headship is missing and submission is missing. Neither one is in either of these passages. But if we come to Ephesians 5 thinking it's all about marriage and we mm -hmm. think it's about headship and we think it's about submission, then we get off the track and we get ourselves into trouble. So what is it about? It's about it's about the headship of of Christ in the church. Yes, it's about well, not the headship. It's about the unity of Christ in the church. Okay. Christ and the church are united, and they are not they are not one part better than the other. So then Paul takes takes it all, and and here's where I was I was laying on the floor of my office here some years back, and I was looking at the ceiling up above, and I was trying to reflect on this, and all of a sudden it hit me. Paul has built the second half of Ephesians 5 like Genesis chapter 3 was built. There's the two main ideas, and then there's a link up and a link down. And in Ephesians 5.25b, he says, 
Jesus did these two things for us. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for it. Mm -hmm. now, Paul is an Old Testament scholar. He, he knows the scripture and he's got it right. And so he takes this illustration the way it's built in 316 and he says, oh, just as Christ gave himself for the church and he links that back up to 523b. And then Christ loved the church. He links that down to the, the section below it. So we've got a one, two, three section with two main ideas being illustrated. And the two ideas are how Christ loved the church and how he gave himself up for it. Right. So it isn't really now the only thing okay, here, here, I'm going to push back a little bit. So I, I've, I've argued this as well, is that the whole idea of how Christ relates to the church in that passage isn't about authority. It's about love and service and how he gave himself up. But then people say, but yes, but Christ is an authority over the church. Christ is the Lord of all. Mm -hmm. And you might want to find that idea in some other passage, but it's not in this passage. Right. Because you would see it in Philippians 2, for instance, where it's like every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But what yeah. you're saying is, yes, that's true, but it's not, that's not the point of this passage. Right. In Ephesians 2, he emptied himself. He, you know, he emptied, right. him, you know, gave himself up. Yeah. No, in this passage, the main point is Christ and the church are one unit. So he's mm -hmm. trying to explain that main thing. And he, he builds two sections around it. The first section is this three part as Christ, as Christ, as Christ. And the second part is, is as the husband and wife, as parents and children, and as masters and slaves. All of it is rotating around the very center, which is 532. Right. So the, his big idea is 532. If we get that, the great mystery of the unity of, of Christ and the church, then we understand the rest of the passage. Okay, so so the only way to under, to understand how Paul was talking about marriage is really to look at what Paul meant by Christ in the church. That's what you're saying. That's right. If uh, <laughs> there there are there are a couple of quotations in First Corinthians 14 and First Corinthians 11 that I like to put quotation marks around. First uh -huh. Corinthians 11 four to six, you put quotation marks around it and you realize that those aren't Paul's ideas. He's res responding to those ideas. You yeah. go to first Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, you put quotation marks around them. Those aren't Paul's ideas. He's responding to those ideas. Yeah. In Ephesians, I think we need to put a parenthesis around several parts. If you look at uh, the middle of 530, uh, 523, the first part where the husband's ahead of the wife, you can put a parenthesis around that. The beginning of 525, you can put a parenthesis about that around that where it says, husbands, love your wives. And the same thing with the third section. Why? Because he's trying to give us a, peri a, a an idea, the pattern of fours. He says, submitting yourselves one to another mm -hmm. in the fear of Christ. Then he says, as Christ gave himself up for the church, himself, the Savior. Mm -hmm. And then as Christ loved and gave, gave himself, and then as Christ loved. So the main thread of that is as Christ, as Christ, as Christ, and then Christ and the church are one. Along the way, he does talk about husbands and wives in one unit. He does talk about husbands, love your wives. And he does talk about love your, love yourself, take care of your body. Mm -hmm. But from 526 on, he's not talking about marriage anymore at all. He's talking he's very clearly, he's all about Christ and the church. Mm -hmm. So that we've gone to that passage and we've said tell me more about marriage and uh, tell me about submission tell me about headship and so we've pulled that idea but we've really poured that idea into the passage he's not talking about that at all okay interesting so the the whole concept like the word headship 
isn't actually like it's kind of a made up term like there, <laughs> like there isn't there isn't really such a thing as headship because it's it's building this whole doctrine of of authority around something where Paul was trying to make an an analogy of how Christ relates to the church right is that what you're is that what you're saying if you go back to this submission that he takes apart and rebuilds in 521 mm -hmm. instead of saying that we must submit to somebody who is over us and and uh, and we're under so there's an over under submission a vertical submission and that that's what the word means all over mm -hmm. he takes it and he rebuilds it and he says no submitting one to another in the right. fear of christ mm -hmm. and he also that's the pattern of fours there's a parallelism with 519a where he says speaking to one another Mm -hmm. And there, and if you look in Colossians 3.16, he uses that same phrase and he says, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Mm -hmm. All right, so we can fill in that speaking and make it out. That's a simple word, but we have more details from Colossians. So we're speaking, we're teaching and admonishing one another. Now, if I'm being filled with the Spirit and I'm teaching and admonishing one another, and the parallel to that is submitting ourselves one to another, what am I submitting to? I'm submitting to the teaching that I'm getting from other Christians and yeah. I'm submitting to the admonishing or the corrections I'm getting from other Christians. That's not about marriage at all. It's about old and new, male and female, all of us in the body of Christ, we're teaching what we know or we're reminding people about what we, what we know and we're correcting and then we're submitting ourselves one to another. So there's a beautiful unity, just like the heart pumps out the red blood and then it comes back as the purple blood. You know, we've, we've got the whole system functioning together so we have this uh teaching and submitting working together we have the correcting and submitting working together that's what's going on in 19a and and 21. i've heard that before too that part of submitting is is listening to others and and listening to and and being open to their admonishing so i've heard that from other people too i really like that i i think and tell me if i'm wrong but i think that in today's culture we have such a preoccupation with power and authority and so we tend to read that into the scripture whereas and in roman times they did as well i mean it was a very power dominant society but jesus specifically said that it was not to be that way with us you know, the son of man came not to serve, not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like it, what, like we're not supposed to be aiming for power and authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so Paul enters into that. And I feel like in his writings, he's continuing that thought of Jesus, that it's about how we relate to one another. Like the only place that I've found in scripture, and we don't need to go there necessarily, but where Paul actually talks about authority in marriage is 1 Corinthians 7, where he says it's shared. <laughs> you know, the husband doesn't have authority over his body, um, but yielded to the wife. The wife doesn't have authority over her body, but yielded to the husband. So the authority is completely mutual and shared. And that's the only time he actually talks about authority. Other than that, it, it really is this idea of serving and submission in different ways. So I'm, I'm involved in pastoral training that's the kind of ministry that i've done all my life and if we're teaching pastors we're trying to teach them how does the church function first mm -hmm. now one of the practical things is how does the household function mm -hmm. and what he does starting on 533 is he says i got three more points here that are balanced off by what was just said before i'm talking about the husbands and wives and there there's nothing except 
we've got a mutual relationship going there. He, he takes a hook and he goes, takes the word fear and he goes back to 521, which is the fear. So he's saying, right. see, I, see, I'm referring to this mutual submission. And so we have the husbands and wives and some people put a word obey in there, but that's not at the, at the end of chapter five. There's no, nothing about obedience. Then he moves to chapter six and he does use the word obey, he says children obey. And he yeah. says, servants obey. Yeah. So he's got, but each time he tries to undo it, at very at the very end he says uh servants you got to do it this way and then he says and masters you do the same thing yeah well that's that's outrageous how could he say masters do the same thing and mm -hmm. and people get hung up in in six four where they say this is fathers are in charge of the whole house mm -hmm. but that very word for fathers is used in hebrews where it talks about the parents of moses Right. In, in Greek, it's pateras. These these parents of Moses, you know how they raised him uh, when he was, uh, you know, they had to put him in the in the bulrushes and, mm -hmm. and they took care of him. So those parents of Moses were faithful, and in this way, six four, it says, "Parents don't provoke your children to wrath, not not fathers." Mm -hmm. So we've got mothers and fathers in six chapter four verses one through four. We've got in a multiple in in a in a, a united relationship between the two, a reciprocal relationship. Now, children aren't always children. They grow up and they can become adults. And slaves aren't always slaves. A lot of times they could have been liberated when the Jubilee year came around or read the book of Philemon. So yes. as long as they are, though, they're in that relationship of obedience. But Paul says, no, I want you to treat each other the same way because we are united. We're in one body in Christ. So we've got those three illustrations after 532. We've got three illustrations before 32, but he's just pounding on this idea of 532. Christ and the church make one unity and we are, it's even better than the relationship we had in the Garden of Eden. It goes mm -hmm. beyond Eden. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. So you're just saying head is literally head. <laughs> just like the ant, you, you got the head, you got the body and they're both together and they're joint. And that's the whole point of it. Yeah, we don't get any farther abstract than that. So some people say, well, head means, well, no. If you can't say, I've got my wife and myself, we are joined in the flesh in one head and one body, we can't do that. So we have to take it figuratively. But there are different levels of abstraction when you go figurative. And if you can take the simplest level of abstraction, that's the best. So what's the simplest? Well, we've got a head, we've got a body, the two go together, we have one unit. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. So if the simple sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Mm -hmm. People don't like that or they don't they didn't realize that was an option and they go farther for something more abstract. So they say, well, it means head means source. Mm -hmm. And they come up with their reasons for that. Others say, no, head means authority. And they come up with their reasons for that. And I've I've watched with interest at this group and this group criticize the other person's <laughs> position on that. Mm -hmm. And I think they do a great job of destroying each other. All right, well, that's the very abstract thing. We don't need any of that stuff. We go back to the simple level of abstraction that the two form one unity. They form one unit, one whole body, one functioning togetherness. And it's great. It's a wonderful thing. So husband's ahead of the wife. That's right. Husband and wife form one unit. As Christ is the head of the church. That's right. We have one unit. And you go over into 1 Corinthians, as the Father and the Son are united. That's right. We have the Godhead. Mm -hmm. Add the Holy Spirit, we have the Trinity. No heresy where people say, well, we've got, you know, God is more important than the submissive son. No, no. We just have a wonderful unity and they're put together and they're reciprocally relating one to another. Mm -hmm. 
That's beautiful. And I, and again, I just want to say when we try to make the new Testament all about power and authority, we're missing the whole point. And so I love this, how you can just read it the way it is. And when you read it the way it is, it makes a lot of sense. (laughs) We're called as Christians to do what then? Just what Christ's example was. He loved Mm -hmm. and he gave of himself. So in marriage, what are we called to do? We're called to love, agape love, husbands, agape love, wives, agape love, God's love. And we're called to give of ourselves. We're supposed to look for the best. We're supposed to give of ourselves, sacrifice for the other to build up the whole unit. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Well, Bruce, where can people find you? Our website is true316.com. That's tru 316com and then from there, you'll find links to the Eden podcast or the Book of Eden and, and other things that we do. Great. And I will put those links in the show notes as well. So thank you so much for joining us again. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your ministry, Sheila. Really interesting. I will put links where you can follow Bruce in the podcast notes that goes along with this um, podcast. And now just to end it off, we have some gifts to give away. Now we are recording this quite a few weeks before it airs. And so I can't announce the winners. But Suffice to say (laughs) that we have given out two prizes to orgasm courses, one to someone who signed up last week and one to someone who has already signed up. And we will put those names in the newsletter that goes out on Friday, but we're going to give out some more prizes. So if you sign up to our email list, the link is in the podcast notes. You could win either your choice of an orgasm course or our puberty whole story course, um, where you can talk to your mothers can talk to their daughters or dads can talk to their sons or single parent to the opposite sex um, about puberty and sex your choice orgasm course or that course someone who signs up in the next week to our email list as well as someone who has already been on the list and we will announce that in next friday's email okay we have some encouragement to share with you yes and this time i get to read it okay because it was on my social media instead of yours okay i'm ready so someone found me on tiktok and they wrote this Your book was the catalyst to me going back in school at 30 to go into psychology so I can be a part of the solution within the church. You made me feel like I can absolutely be part of the solution for change within the church. Thank you. That's amazing. I know. I just thought that was so lovely. Yeah. Just this idea that there are people, um, and and, and like we said, uh, we've said in past podcasts too, is this can be a very discouraging job and it can feel like the burden is very heavy Mm -hmm. and it feels like there's just so much to do and there are just so many things that just keep piling up and there's so little change or movement from those in power Mm -hmm. and hearing that there are people who are actively working to fix it it just makes it feel like it's not all on our shoulders yeah and I, I love the fact that she's gone back to school at 30. I to know. Become, uh, to be a licensed counselor. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. And so, and we know a lot of counselors are listening to us. We're glad you're here. If yes. you have any feedback that we can have on how we can get the Great Sex Rescue into more hands of more counselors, um, we would love to hear that too. So send us a note um, in the comment section on my blog at lovehonorandvacuum.com. We will put a link to that in the podcast notes as well, wherever you listen to this podcast or watch it on YouTube. Thank you for joining in and join us next week again um, for another edition of the Bear Marriage Podcast. And please join me at lovehonorandvacuum.com as we start our series on marriage on hard mode. Bye-bye.